welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is a show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. This episode is dedicated to all the parents of young children out there, as well as all who will soon be parents. I hope you find this information a useful starting point. May your entire family be blessed with lifelong good health, vitality, and well-being. The topic of vaccines and health seems an especially timely one right now. As we rush to find a vaccine for COVID-19 and many people eagerly line up to get it, I thought it would be a good opportunity to do some research of my own and talk to some people who've done a deep dive into this. Today's episode is Basecamp's longest episode, by far. I thought of cutting it down or making it into two parts to keep with our roughly 30-minute format. However, when I was editing the episode, it just seemed too valuable, and my hunch was to let it play as a long-format episode. I'm not sure how often Chris Rod, my sound editor, and I will do this. I really do like the easier, digestible 30-minute episodes. But every time I listen and try to cut it or create an end to a part one, the next part of the conversation seemed to want to be part of the episode as well. And it's a wonderful thing for me to create and edit these for you, and intuition plays a big part. What will assist the listeners the most? What resources will they take away from this? How will this help them on their hero's journey? These are the questions that Chris and I both keep as our guide in making these. Many people do not have the bandwidth to research things like vaccine safety. Thankfully for all of us, there are people like my guest today who do. I've noticed that asking questions that challenge the status quo tends to ruffle feathers. This is a natural process, asking questions that lead to discoveries that may challenge assumptions. Is the status quo really all that sacrosanct, especially in the area of health? What if, instead of reflexively and defensively defending the status quo, we learned how to lean into the discussion as if there might be an important viewpoint or insight that may just be a key component to understanding our health, our children's health, and our future? My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Margulis. She is an award-winning science journalist who has been researching and writing about health-related topics for over 15 years. She is the author or co-author of eight nonfiction books, including Your Baby, Your Way, and The Vaccine-Friendly Plan with Dr. Paul Thomas. She is currently working on a book about her mother, a renowned microbiologist whose theories have changed our basic understanding of the mechanisms of evolution. Her books have been translated into Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, German, and Estonian. Here is my interview with Dr. Margulies. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Margulies. Jennifer, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. What a timely uh, discussion. You're you're a award-winning science journalist, um, and I've been following your work, fantastic writing and thinking, um, and I thought it'd just be great to have you on to have a conversation about uh, health and vaccines. To start off with, just to dive right in, I know a lot of people that would categorize themselves as sort of pro-vaccine, I guess is one way to describe it. Um, in other words, if you talked with them, they would probably say something about, I trust the science or, you know, the CDC says this, so I just trust that. Um, or I also hear like, well, it eradicated polio, didn't it? And so that's their reason for not questioning uh, vaccines at all. Um, and I have a lot of friends that think this way and I care about them. And I thought it would be interesting to open up a conversation 
uh, where maybe we start to talk about some things that they don't know. And so I guess my first question is for this crowd is what are some things that they might not know about vaccines and the CDC? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think that most of us categorize ourselves as pro-vaccine, but that's a little bit of an empty designation. Um, You know, if you have taken antibiotics and you're really grateful for them because they helped you treat a a strep throat, and then you realize because you start reading about antibiotics and how they're overprescribed and how doctors give them for viral infections where they cannot be helpful. And you start to realize that in order to be really healthy, it's the better way to go is to avoid taking so many antibiotics. I don't think anybody would accuse you of being anti-antibiotic. What you are is you're in favor of making, you know, good, smart, educated health choices. And so I'd like to get away from this idea of I am pro-vaccine or I am anti-vaccine. I mm-hmm. think what we all are is interested in vaccine safety and lifelong good health, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so here's what's going on with that is that not all vaccines are created equal. Mm-hmm. Not all vaccines have the same safety profile. Not all vaccines have the same efficacy profile. And not all vaccines are necessary. So those of us who are part of the vaccine safety movement are asking questions about whether all these vaccines, are they safe? Are they necessary? Are they effective? Mm -hmm. And I think that any thinking person would be asking those questions, even if you are the most staunchly pro-vaccine person on the planet. That's great. You know, I, I didn't even, what, what, what is, in, in terms of vaccines and pediatricians, what, what is informed consent? What, what does that entail? And are, are parents getting informed consent when it comes to their vaccines? Yeah, those are, those are that's kind of a buzzword, informed consent, right? And it, yeah. it, it, it is something that is applied to every time you make any decision about your health or mm-hmm. your, your child's health. So it's not just pediatricians, but it's all doctors should be giving informed consent. And the idea behind informed consent is that before we do a procedure, before we give a medication or before we offer a vaccine, we have to talk to patients. We have to tell them what the risks are of the intervention, what the benefits are of the intervention, what the risks are of not doing the intervention, what the benefits are of not doing the intervention. So in order to give informed consent about vaccines, Tony, Mm -hmm. we have to look at each and every vaccine that's being recommended for our child and the doctor then would talk to us. So let's, you mentioned polio earlier. Um, And it's interesting because I lived and worked in West Africa as an adult, as a young adult. And then I went back when I had a family, I had three little ones in tow and, and polio is one of the vaccines that I've had at least three times. I did the oral, oral polio vaccine before that was changed. Um, and, you know, and then I've had the, I've had the regular polio vaccine that they give today. And so have my children. So polio is a very interesting vaccine to talk about, but if we're going to talk about that, Tony, we have to tell people honestly how many cases of polio are there in the United States and what is your risk of getting polio? And I asked that question to the head of the immunization program at the CDC. And he said that there were so few cases of polio in the United States that it was quote, unquantifiable, meaning that there was zero risk of any child in America getting polio. And if you do a deep dive into the, into the sort of history and the research, you'll see 
that there has been no wild polio in the United States in more than 20 years. The only cases of polio that we've had in the United States have been vaccine-induced polio. Mm -hmm. So back to informed consent, if we're talking about polio, somebody, a doctor needs to tell you what the risks of getting polio are, what the benefits of potentially getting the polio vaccine are, what the risks of getting the polio vaccine are, and then you know, and then you and you know, then you make the decision what the alternatives are. So, if there is an alternative to this vaccine, is there something else that we could do? So, you need all of that information, and you have to go through that on a vaccine by vaccine basis as you're making the decisions about which vaccines you're going to get for yourself and which vaccines you're going to get for your children. Unfortunately, doctors don't tend to do that. Um, they hand people a piece of paper from the CDC. It is a one-page outline. It talks, it's, you know, it's a, it's supposed to, that's supposed to be informed consent. Giving somebody a Xerox piece of paper is not informed consent. Well, that, and that brings me to, I, I, I watched uh, Ty Bollinger's The Truth About Vaccines. And in the first part of that, um, he was, he was sort of highlighting that um, that the doctors often don't really know what's in them, that they are just, like you said, going on the CDC schedule. And when they started to talk to pediatricians, um, including some that now give informed consent, what they said was that we're just too damn busy to read this minutia fine print that the that the pharmaceutical rep gives you and that it can be very easy to go, look, I don't have time to, for this kind of investigative stuff. I have a busy, you know, medical practice. And so it's almost set up for the doctors to sort of say, I, I can't look into this. I don't have time The C I have to trust the CDC. It's worked up till now, I think. And, and I'm just going to go with that. And I, I was left with, wow, not that, not to be angry at the pediatricians, they're in a tough spot, but just, I was left with just this um, sort of admiration for the ones that broke out, like Paul Thomas, you know, who, who said, look, there's something going on and I owe it to my patients to really get under the hood and see what the, what the heck's going on with this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, what you're talking about is really important, which is that the vast majority of doctors in the United States don't actually know what ingredients are included in each vaccine, they don't know what the risks of getting those vaccines are or what the risks of the ingredients are. So if I can give you an example, um, you know, one of the biggest concerns that people have today is the overexposure of toxins. And so we know if you're a health person, you know that you shouldn't be feeding your kid red dye number 40. And you know that that's linked to hyperactivity and you know you can do it sometimes we just had halloween that's okay but on a daily basis you don't want to be sort of stuffing your child full of pesticides herbicides and possible neurotoxins right like yep. those are that kind of thinking parents today are really aware of that and most of us are reading ingredient labels and trying to move to a healthier whole food kind of a diet and cuz we notice that our kids are happier and healthier and so are we right right but the, you know, but but the same people who have tremendous concerns about what's going into our food have no idea what the ingredients are in our vaccines. And one of those ingredients that we're all trying to stay away from is aluminum. Aluminum is a known neurotoxin. There have been more than half a dozen studies in the last two years confirming that aluminum is associated now in, in what looks like a causative way with 
Alzheimer's, dementia, and also with brain damage in children. So then you have to look at, well, we don't, you know, we're trying to stay away from aluminum. Then why are there 250 micrograms of aluminum in the hepatitis B vaccine that we give to a child within a few hours of birth? And Mm. could that aluminum be causing a problem. And when Dr. Paul Thomas, who you just mentioned, who's my co-author, when he brought that up with his mainstream pediatric practice, and he because he had no idea, it took a parent educating him. It took him seeing in front of his own eyes his patients having struggling with their own health. And you know, he's seeing his pediatric patients who were following his orders 100% and then coming back and not being healthy and getting diagnosed with autoimmune disorders, starting to have a lot of attention problems and even getting autism, he started to look into it and he asked his colleagues like, okay, let's talk about this hepatitis B vaccine. Hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease. Are we sure we need to be giving it to children within a few hours of life, right? Yeah. (laughs) And instead of his colleagues opening their minds and saying, wow, you know, we should take a look at this. There might be a problem here. The conversation was completely shut down. Mm. And if any of your listeners have that happen to them, whether they're, you know, a dad bringing their child to the doctor or whether they're going in for some routine um, well check for themselves, if they want to have a conversation with a doctor and the doctor tells them, I don't know, and I won't talk to you about this. I trust the CDC. That is a, such a huge red flag. And what you need to do is, you know, vote with your feet and walk out of that office and never go back to a doctor who's not willing to engage with you on very legitimate questions mm-hmm. about, you know, safety and efficacy of the recommendations the doctor's making. Yeah, I mean, we had the experience of our pediatrician it felt like we were being strong-armed a bit, you know, like she was kind of, you know, it's, it's this, this is the way for my patients or you got to find a different doctor, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I'm not saying she's a bad doctor, but she, she wasn't giving us freedom to kind of say, maybe we're, maybe we should spread these out more. Maybe we want to, um, right. And that's not Tony, that's not informed consent. That's, that's medical bullying. And, you know, and I, I mean, I have a, I have a friend who, when she had brought her um, her son to the pediatrician in Colorado, um, the pediatrician, her regular pediatrician wasn't there. The doctor who was there said, I'm going to take you to the graveyard so we can walk among the tombstones so you can see what happens to children uh-huh. of mothers like you oh. who refuse to do vaccines or who ask questions. She was, she wasn't refusing. She was asking for information. And she said, he said, I've got a graveyard full of dead people to show you. I mean, that's not medicine. That's just baloney. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and, and Dr. Uh, Paul Thomas that we've been talking about, um, there was a point in the documentary where he had a wake up call. He was following the CDC schedule and all of a sudden he started to notice a change in his young patients. And there was one point where he described it was, it woke him up. It, it woke him up and put him into action. And it was chilling. It, it, as a parent, it made me nauseous to hear his tale of it because I just know how heartbreaking it must have been for him, for the parents, that this child was drastically changed by following the CDC schedule. And, and um, they recently, he recently did, and his clinic did a study. There was 3,345 patients at Integrative Pediatrics that they studied, and the the autism rates with no vaccines were one in 715, 
with a vaccine-friendly plan, which I assume means picking and choosing uh, or spreading out the vaccines, the autism rates were one in 440. And the ones that got uh, that followed the CDC had a one in 45 ratio of autism. And you would think a study like this would be blasted all over the news. Like this is really relevant information for parents and you could barely find this. I mean, there I never saw any mention of it in left center or right mainstream media. I don't know if it got covered, but it didn't get covered very much. Uh, and you can find it if you're Snoopy uh, and you're curious. But um, what's up with the what's up with the crickets? Why why if this is so valuable? Why are we not being told? Hey, look, we did this really great study, and here's our findings. You really should know this. Yeah, I mean, not only first of all, that study is one of um, of literally hundreds now, um, literally hundreds of studies that are coming up with the same information, which is that, and it, it, you know, it's it's that when we overexpose children to toxins, when we overvaccinate our kids, we end up getting very poor health outcomes, and you know, we can we see that over and over again, and you don't have to do a study to just look at the, you know, sort of the, the regular American child and how sick those children are, you know, over, uh, I think it's, what is it? 54% of American children have some kind of autoimmune disorder now diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Our rates of autism and ADHD and other neurological problems have skyrocketed. We have, we're seeing type one juvenile diabetes in kids like we've never seen before. And we have one of the highest infant mortality rates of any country in the industrialized world. So just, you know, just starting off, like we wouldn't be having this conversation, Tony, if our kids were doing so well. Right, right, <laughs> so right. right. You know, right there, the problem is when you follow the mainstream media guidelines, you end up I'm sorry, the mainstream medical guidelines. I, mm-hmm. th- that was an interesting Freudian slip yeah, because yeah. the uh, media uh, and the medical, we can go yeah. back to that question. But, you know, you follow the mainstream medical guidelines and you end up having all sorts of problems. So the vaccine-friendly plan, um, which you're talking about, really one of the things that we recommend, that's the name of one of my books um, that Paul and I, Dr. Thomas and I wrote together, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. And what that book offers is a safe and effective approach to immunity and health. And the idea behind that is that we want to be very careful in identifying kids who might have bad reactions to vaccines, because as much as the mainstream media doesn't want to tell you this is happening, you know, some children are susceptible and can have devastating outcomes from being over-vaccinated. And then we want to do, so we want to identify those kids. And if they have a problem, we don't want to be vaccinating them Mm -hmm. on the CDC schedule, which is too aggressive and it's become dangerous. It's just like overusing antibiotics when you take something that's sort of unquestionably good. I mean, antibiotics have saved so many people's lives. And we can say that vaccines used judiciously have saved so many people's lives. But you take something that's sort of unquestionably good, like an antibiotic or like a vaccine, and then you overdo it and you keep giving more and more and more, and then you end up having some very serious problems. So what the vaccine-friendly plan tries to do, Tony, is to space out aluminum-containing vaccines. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about aluminum, which is a known neurotoxin, right? So we don't want to give a child more than one vaccine that contains aluminum at a time. The vaccine-friendly plan also insists on never, ever, ever again, and I hope all of your listeners will pay attention to this advice, never giving your child acetaminophen. 
Mm. Acetaminophen is the main ingredient in Tylenol. And it looks like the combination of giving vaccines with known toxins in it and acetaminophen before and after vaccination, which this is standard of care in the medical world in the United States, is a one-two punch that can be devastating for susceptible children. Jennifer, why why do they have to have aluminum in there? Does it bind some of the chemicals? Like if they know it's so bad, why do they have to include it? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. First of all, who, and I realized I also didn't answer your other question about the media silence. So hopefully we can, you can remind me to go back to that. We'll we'll come back to that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Okay, good. I mean, the, you know, the the thing about aluminum is that, so what the aluminum does in the vaccines is it, it makes the vaccine, it makes the body recognize that the vaccine is a foreign agent. So the aluminum is used as an adjuvant. An adjuvant is added to vaccines to make them stronger, to make them more effective. And the reason why we need aluminum, so there's no aluminum in any of the live viral vaccines. Um, you don't need aluminum because the body is going to mount an immune response, right? But in something like hepatitis B or the Hib vaccine or rotavirus, which was a vaccine that did not exist when my children were little, and it's one of the vaccines that I would argue should not be given to children once you've had full informed consent, you would know why. Um, But a vaccine like that, you're talking about vaccinating against, um, you know, bacterial infections that we cohabitate with, either viruses or bacteria that that we have in and on our body. And so the problem is, that are, you know, the problem is not being exposed to these things. It's being, it's, it's having an acute reaction to them. So in order for the vaccine to work, we have to make sure the body recognizes the vaccine as foreign. And the idea is that you put aluminum in it. The body knows that aluminum is toxic and does everything it can to get rid of that aluminum because we do not want aluminum in our bodies. And then at the same time, it will mount an effective immune response against the bacteria or the attenuated virus that you're trying to protect the child against. So does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the thing is, you said at the beginning of your question, you said, but we we know aluminum is harmful. But of course, whenever you start questioning the status quo, people start doing all sorts of crazy twisted dances to try to get around it. So even though the FDA, Tony, has very clear guidelines about how much aluminum is safe per day, per kilogram of weight of a child, the CDC is not, doesn't know, it's, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Are the aluminum content in vaccines is so um, much more than what the Fe- the Food and Drug Administration says is safe mm-hmm. on any given day, and one of the reasons why the vaccine friendly plan seems to be much much more effective and at not causing problems in in children is that is that it's spreading the aluminum exposure over time and it's reducing the exposure to aluminum. And you know, you'd think that any scientist would say, well, look at, I mean, we have so many studies. Some of them are recent, some of them are older. I mean, we've got such a growing body of scientific evidence against aluminum that it's a no-brainer that we do not want to inject our children intramuscularly or ourselves with aluminum. At the same time, that would mean completely redoing these vaccines and and using new technology to make them more effective and to make them safer. And that's a, you know, a multi-billion dollar cost that people don't want to do. So what the vaccine manufacturers 
and the doctors are doing is they're basically apologizing for a technology that's now outdated that we know is harmful and that is not working in the way it is intended to work. And instead of, you know, getting excited about the possibility of new technology, what's happening is that people are just sort of, you know, doubling down and saying, oh, oh, that's not true. So that one of the arguments against aluminum is that people say, oh, well, ingested aluminum, I mean, we know you can eat it and it's fine. And, you know, so (laughs) first of all, ingested aluminum is not fine. And second of all, that's a completely different pathway, you know, taking something in your mouth versus putting it right into your bloodstream. Bloodstream. Yeah. Well, and and then also, one thing that I don't think parents realize these days, um, I'm 54 years old. I had three doses when I was a kid. Um, and I think parents think, well, there's a little bit more vaccinations going on. But when you see the CDC schedule, I think it's something like in the 60s, 62 or something. Like, it's an astoundingly high amount of uh, the dosage is really high now, right? Yeah. Is that is that a fair way to say that or am I off on that? I don't know. No, no, no. I mean, we are doing the the, you know, it depends if you're if you're counting the number of needles or if you're counting the actual doses and it can get very confusing if you're going to say, you know, the optional ones, the recommended ones, but I mean, what is an absolutely factual statement is that we can say is that we are doing over four times as many vaccines yeah. We're giving to children as we were in 1983. So, but to forget about when you and I were kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, that, you know, but the interesting thing, Tony, is that if you look at the health outcomes of children from when you and I were children and then children from the early 80s, and you compare that to the health outcomes of children born after 1986, and I can explain why that date is important, mm-hmm. um, you see that our health was so much better before we were overexposing our 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 kids to toxins what ha- what happened in 1986 so in in 1986 there was a huge problem with the whooping cough vaccine it was a it was a live um, vaccine and it was causing it was causing some devastating damage in some children and when this came out it was so it was the it's a it's a combined vaccine where it has diphtheria, which was a devastating illness in the 19th century, but is no longer an illness that we worry about in the United States. Pertussis, which is whooping cough, and tetanus, which is a soil-borne illness that people are afraid of if you step on a, you know, a dirty or a rusty nail, right? You can yep. get it, or you can get it from playing with animal feces. So tetanus is one is a vaccine that people who are doing a lot of farm work are often interested in. That triple vaccine was causing terrible problems. And one of the things that was found was that there were hot lots. There were vaccines that were just mismanufactured and those hot lots were causing, you know, many deaths and brain damage. And when that happened, the vaccine manufacturer, when that started to come out and it came out because of some really excellent investigative journalism, (laughs) that was when the journalists were actually doing their job, which I would argue we're not seeing as much in the United States as we used to. The vaccine manufacturers basically said, we are going to suspend, we're going to stop this entire program. We're not going to make any vaccines available to any Americans unless you give us, unless you give us indemnity, unless you Mm -hmm. excuse us from liability. And so that's what Congress did is that they can't be sued, right? No, they cannot be sued. They, well, that's okay. 
that's a little complicated, but the short version is that they are not liable for their products in any way, shape or form. So if your child has a terrible reaction, I mean, say they go into anaphylactic shock and your child dies or they get something called transverse myelitis, which is a known side effect of the... um, the HPV vaccine that we now give Mm -hmm. to to nine-year-olds, right? (laughs) And they become paralyzed for life. Um, If that happens, you do have the right to go to what we call the vaccine court and to get some kind of monetary compensation for your loss. Um, But that court is paid for by a consumer tax on every vial of vaccines sold in the United States. So manufacturers were absolutely excused of all financial liability, Tony, in 1986. That's when the the law was passed and then it went into effect in two years later, you know, it was phased in. And since then, what has happened is we have added and added and added vaccines to the schedule because you have a market about 4 million babies, a little less now, are born in the United States every year. If you vaccinate that child within hours of birth, that is 4 million doses that you know you sell every single year. It's such astounding big business now. And now that they've been excused of all liability and you cannot sue the manufacturers, they have no reason really, to be careful with their products or to say, wow, maybe we don't need a vaccine against chickenpox. Maybe there are benefits to getting that disease. And maybe this isn't something we should be universally recommending for kids. Or, you know, we're not having those conversations anymore because there's absolutely no reason for any of these big vaccine manufacturers to to question their product. They know they can just keep adding and adding and adding and nobody can do anything about it. <laughs> do, you, do you know, do you know, I told that to a uh, lawyer friend of mine that they're not liable for their products. And he said, that can't be right. And then the next time I saw him like a week later, he's like, damn, yeah, they're, they're not liable. I can't b- even believe it. I'm like, yeah, that's part of the problem. Right. And people think I had the same. My brother is a criminal defense lawyer in New York City. He also Mm. happens to have three children. He jumped down my throat. He said, you're absolutely wrong. I said, go and look it up. Don't believe anything I'm telling you. I will give you the citations. You should fact check every sentence. And same thing, Tony. He came back the next week and he said, I had no idea. Most people have no idea. Yeah. Now, to, to circle back around to why the media doesn't report uh, the studies and stuff, is it really so obvious and crass is sort of follow the money because these pharmaceutical companies are so powerful. They got so much money at stake. They make so much money uh, in vaccines. Uh, is it is it because they're just, is it because people aren't interested in the truth or not interested in an alternative narrative? Or is it because the media companies are saying, no, we don't want to, we don't want to expose this. This would be bad for business. For the pharmacy. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to be, I, I think there's several reasons and, you know, some of them are nefarious and some of them are very well-intentioned. And I, I can tell you as a, you know, I've, I've been a health journalist for more than 15 years and I've been researching and writing about a lot of controversial subjects, including vaccines, cesarean birth, circumcision, all these kind of issues. And you know, the, the, the first reason I would say is a well-meaning one. And, and what that is, is it's, it's this idea that, oh my God, if this information got out, we might hurt people. Mm-hmm. So 
if people understood that we're over vaccinating or if they understood, they might think all vaccines are bad and then they might turn away from them and then, oh my God, people will die. And honestly, I, I you know, there's a lot of really well-intentioned editors and I, I've, I've worked at many, many, many different newspapers, magazines, online sites. I also do some writing and audio features for a national public radio affiliate. Uh, and, you know, these very well-meaning people think I have an ethical responsibility not to hurt anyone. And that if we start talking honestly and openly about these issues, what I brought to the public might cause harm. So let's give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think when they haven't really looked into it and they aren't really awake about these issues, that that is one of the legitimate, potentially legitimate concerns. We can argue about that. Um, But then the much more nefarious answer to the question is that, you know, the the news media is owned right now by big business. It's the same way that big tobacco was funding, you know, putting just millions of dollars into advertising campaigns and into, into political leaders and all of this. And there is so much money at stake here, Tony, that it's mind boggling. So every time somebody wakes up and says, no, thank you, just to the hepatitis B vaccine at birth, which is I would put to your listeners, no matter where they are on their thinking or their education about vaccines, that when they start to study the hepatitis B vaccine at birth, they're going to say, wow, that is a no-brainer. That's one we need to take off the schedule. There is no good reason for us to be giving that indiscriminately to every child in America. But every time we turn somebody away from the hepatitis B vaccine, we're talking about literally you know, thousands of dollars in revenue lost. And if I could say one more thing, you know, we do have a healthcare system that is predicated on being sick. So the healthier your children are, I mean, I feel like my children are a good case in point because, um, you know, they never had antibiotics ever. They didn't have ear infections. They didn't need antibiotics as kids. They were so healthy. And if you think about it, what is it? The average, um, uh, it's something like by the time you're 20 years old, you've had between 17 and 19 rounds of antibiotics. So Mm -hmm. Every time we have healthy kids who don't need to go to the doctor, we lose money for the entire system. All of the doctors, all of the hospitals, all of the pharmaceutical companies, everybody loses money. We don't want to have healthy people in America. If we did, we're, we're one of the most incredible, brilliant countries in the world. I'm very patriotic when I'm not talking about medicine. Um, you know, if we really cared about children's health, we would be number one in children's health. The fact that we're not is because we put business interests before we put, you know, health interests. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ill, illness is big business for sure. I, I loved your articles. I, lo- I really love your writing. You've got an article on your website, COVID-19 vaccine, do you need to get one? And I think this is, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people saying, oh, I just can't wait for the vaccine for COVID-19. You know, and it's, I'm kind of just staying silent about it because I'm like, oh, you know, maybe you're just, <laughs> you just think that it's going to be automatically be the right thing. Um, and you bring up in your article, you bring up a great, a bunch of great points, but you say, you know, vaccines exist for smallpox, anthrax, typhoid, and yellow fever, but you would not get one except 
for possible rabid animal bite or if you had anticipated exposure because all these vaccines have serious side effects. And here we are uh, rushing to get uh, a COVID-19 vaccine that a large portion of the population is eagerly anticipating. They're lined up with their sleeves rolled up. Um, and then people that are maybe a little bit more in the know on the health side are saying, wait, and I hear some people going, there's no way in hell I'm getting that. I don't trust, you know, they're, they're rolling a lot of things together, but they're saying, you know, I don't trust Bill Gates. I don't trust the world health. I think this is a big scam. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around this. Um, but what, do, you know, how do we know, how do we make a choice about the COVID-19 vaccine? Is there going to be a bunch of them? Is there going to be, you know, how, how, how do we make an intelligent decision on this? Let me look into my crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm saying that because, of course, we actually don't have a vaccine yet, right? Mm -hmm. We have dozens that are being manufactured and there's a huge race. There's so much money in this. And so far, the, um, you know, the outcomes have not have not been so good. And but what you're asking is an excellent question, because how do we make decisions, whether it's vaccines or whether it's taking a, a heart? you know, medication or, um, a statin drug or what have you, we have to, we have to look at what the smart thing to do is. And, you know, the first thing that I would say is that anybody who wants to get this vaccine should absolutely be able to get it. It should be mm -hmm. easy to get and they should have access to it and it should not cost, you know, them money. So it shouldn't be based on socioeconomic status. And then I would also say that you have to look at the severity of, COVID-19, and then you have to look at how the vaccine was manufactured, what are the ingredients in it, what is the possibility that you could have an allergy or a bad reaction to those ingredients, and you have to do a risk-benefit analysis. Now, it's very hard, Tony, to do a risk-benefit analysis when the vaccine hasn't been on the market. So what happens is there's a lot of safety testing before vaccines go to market and they tend, the, the safety testing actually in, in many cases, not all cases, and you just watch the truth about vaccines so you probably have your head full of all this stuff, right? Yep. But in many cases, they actually do a really excellent job testing, safety testing. But once the vaccine is on the market, they have to see. So post-market surveillance is incredibly important. And, you know, I heard a, a medical doctor say that his mentor said, let other people's patients be the guinea pigs. Mm. And what he meant by that was, you know, he told his, uh, his mentee, don't rush to give any new pharmaceutical drug. Do not rush to give any of your patients any new vaccine. And he said, let other people's patients be the guinea pigs. And indeed, people who run out to the pharmacy or to their doctor's office with their sleeve rolled up, Tony, are going to be the guinea pigs. They might, it might be wonderful and they might have no problems. I anticipate that it won't be. I, I mean, I anticipate that when there is operation, quote, warp speed, and when we are rushing something that is difficult and, you know, it the average time it takes to develop a new vaccine is something like 20 years. And we're trying to do this in 18 months that suggests that any way you slice this cake, there's going to be some crooked pieces on the table. Do you think medical freedom will be challenged uh, by something like, do you think they could do like mandatory vaccines or you think that's too paranoid? Like some people are like, there's no way that will ever fly. But then other people are like, I don't know. They're, they've got a lot of people wearing masks right now. You know, like that seems like almost like a dry run of telling everybody uh, this is what's best for you. Um, 
Maybe it's just yeah, my suspicious nature of it, or I can be a little bit conspiratorial, but uh, I don't like all this, all this mandatory mass. I, I, I question whether that's actually even um, being effective towards uh, limiting the spread of it. I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but I've been a little cranky about this. So, yeah. Well, yeah, no, there are, I have, a, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot to say about masking, um, but that might be a conversation for another time. You know, medical freedom is under assault in the United States, and there has been a nationwide effort. If you, if you look, I think it was last year, USA Today did an excellent, excellent job um, doing an investigative piece about how corporations actually write bills, and you know, they write these bills that then get passed into laws, and they are actually working with lawmakers throughout the United. States writing bills that will benefit them. And that's what we've seen with the pharmaceutical industry. They have been trying across every state in the United States to mandate vaccines for children. And unfortunately, they've been successful in some states. So the fact that, and you know, this happened in California where they took away um, religious exemptions to vaccines. They basically said, your religion doesn't matter. We don't care if you're part of, you know, the the Church of the Old Believers, or if you're a Christian scientist, you may not participate in our education system if your child is not fully vaccinated. We don't care if you have problems with the vaccines that contain cell lines that were grown on a bortal field tissue. We don't care if you are a vegan and you do not want to have canine kidney cells injected into your child. We don't care. Whatever your philosophical or religious belief, you must do it. There is one size and it fits everyone. And that is the opposite of informed consent, despite the fact that literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, went to the Capitol, protested this bill, said, why would you in a free and fair democratic society, why would you take away our children's rights to go to school based on, you know, your idea that that would be keeping them safe when we actually have very legitimate concerns about vaccine safety. Despite all of the protests, that law passed, you know, that bill passed into law. So the idea that this would be medically mandated is not at all conspiracy theory, Tony. It's actually, you're just doing a very smart analysis of what's happening across the United States. And I think that people should be very afraid. Unfortunately, when you talk about medical freedom, people dismiss you and they say immediately that somehow that makes you a Republican, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so whether you're a Republican or a Democrat isn't even an issue. I'm not. I'm not interested in anybody's political affiliation, right? Right. But if you say, "I believe in right now in America," you say, "I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in freedom of the press. I believe that I have the right to decide what is injected yeah. into my body." That somehow makes you a Republican. Yep. I'm a right wing nut job for asking questions about this, <laughs> according yes. to some people, you know? Well, according to a Democratic yeah. narrative that I find, you know, full disclosure, I grew up in Massachusetts where we have a very Democratic state. And I, you know, and I, I mean, as somebody who used to be affiliated with the Democratic Party, I am flabbergasted by the way the left and progressive Democrats in, you know, are, are acting like they have information that we don't have, that they are smarter and better than other people. And that you should, things should be, medicine should be mandated. And if you think otherwise, you should shut up. Yeah. 
I've, I've traveled a similar journey as you have. So I'm with you on that. It's, I'm just trying to use my creative or my uh, critical thinking and just looking and just saying, Hey, what's up with this? Why, why is this happening? What are, what are the elements? Um, and, you know, I could see a big spike in homeschooling coming if, if they try to do any sort of mandatory vaccines. I could see a lot of people, many people that I know well say, I don't think so. We'll do it from home then or, you know, or something like that. But uh, I hope it doesn't get to that. I hope whatever happens, uh, uh, you know, medical freedom prevails or is, is strengthened by this. Um, what resources, you know, the, it's difficult to find things, uh, for people maybe that have not been looking in this direction. So let's say this conversation was interesting and you've got kids or, or, or just for your own health, the conversation you're like, huh, where, where do I find uh, good data, good science and a good narrative where I can take a look and get a clear sense of maybe both sides of the argument. I think we've done a good job of giving kind of an overview of it, but if somebody wants to dig in deeper where would they go book-wise or website-wise? What would you recommend uh, where they could maybe dig in a little bit and get some more uh, information? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have, <laughs> there's so many wonderful resources to recommend, right? And I, the the two places specifically about vaccines that I would start is I would start with Bob Sears, Dr. Bob Sears, MD, his book called The Vaccine Book. I would read that book alongside the book that Dr. Paul Thomas and I wrote called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. So anybody with small children, if you, if, you want, if you want truly unbiased information, and our book especially has over 300 scientific references in the back, and we really encourage people to do their own research, we include the FDA statement about injected aluminum so you can read it for yourself. We include the current vaccine schedule so you can look at it for yourself. We talk about the debates about vaccine and autism, which are so confusing to so many people because we keep hearing over and over again that there's no connection. Um, but that book, along with Dr. Bob Sears's book, I think those two books together are the perfect place to start. And then, you know, of course, there's so many excellent websites. Um, the two, I would, you know, recommend that people go to the, it's the nvic.org, which is the National Vaccine Information Center. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do, Tony, is go to the NVIC and the CDC. And the CDC website is tremendously helpful, especially if you go to the section for doctors. So skip the for patients, go right to for doctors. And the nice thing about NVIC is that everything that they say they reference. So you can go and then read the original studies if you'd like to. Um, mm -hmm. It's incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, most of the information that we need on these issues is right there at the CDC. I mean, it's a lot of it is, is, is kind of, presented in a way that, you know, you can't just read that site and take it at face value. You have to read it and then look at it. And the, the masking is a wonderful example. You know that the CDC does not recommend masks for influenza, right? <laughs> so right. for so many years, <laughs> we've had influenza and people are, we've been told, you've got to get your flu shot. You've got to get your flu shot. Well, go ahead and read all the reasons why we do not use masks for influenza, which you can find in part at the CDC website. And then if you go to the CDC recommendations for why they're recommending masking for coronavirus, what you'll find is that the, the last time I checked, and this was several months ago, so it might've changed, right? Because they're constantly updating things. But when I looked at it, I looked at 
all seven of the articles that they use to justify the wearing of masks and not a single one of those articles mentioned the word mask. All the articles that the CDC was using to force people into masking, putting a face diaper on that inhibits their breathing and inhibits our ability to, to talk to each other. And you know, when you're hard of hearing or you have a sensory processing disorder or you have autism, these masks are absolutely devastating. Every single bit of information that they were using to justify it did not have anything to do with whether or not you should wear a mask. And so any thinking person, I think, I mean, if you want to take the time, which you maybe your listeners don't, <laughs> but if you're a thinking person and you say, you, you start looking at that, you go, wait a second, something is wrong here. I need to start questioning these narratives that everyone is taking for granted. Yeah. Well, I can't breathe in those things. I know it's not good for me because I'm like, this is just like, I, I, it doesn't feel good. I, it's it's weird. I saw, I happened to be on your Twitter feed a couple of days ago and I saw you posted a picture of somebody that got a staph infection from wearing a mask. And I was just like, oh my God, it's terrible. But I think there's, I think there's a lot of health issues from over wearing these masks that people are going to find. Oh, devastating. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. No, listen, Tony, I have a friend who is, who has to read lips. He, um, you know, he's hard of hearing, but he lost his hearing in his twenties and he mm -hmm. cannot function without being able to read people's lips. And he's suicidal. I mean, he is so lonely, so depressed, so isolated because of this mask wearing and that staph infection. I mean, other people now have been sending me photo after photo of their older adults and these horrible infections they're getting around their faces. It's, mm -hmm. this is not something to be taken lightly. And honestly, I think we all need to be freeing our faces. There is no credible evidence that the way we are wearing masks in the United States is doing anything to help the spread of coronavirus. Yeah, I hear you. You're preaching to the choir over here, Jennifer. So, um, and lastly, is there any creative projects that you have coming up that you'd like our listeners to know about? Anything that, uh, this will come out in a couple weeks. We'd love to have you back uh, another time, but for, for now, uh, it's coming out in two weeks. What do you got coming up that you'd like us to know about? Yeah, well, I'm actually hard at work on my ninth book, depending on how you count them. So, um, and yeah, and I realized when I was giving listeners, um, you know, books to read, I probably should have also mentioned I have another book called Your Baby, Your Way, which is um, the subtitle is Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthier Family. And that book contains a chapter on vaccines that I think people will find unbiased and well-referenced and interesting. Um, but the book that I have coming out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt is more than two weeks off, but in the next two weeks, hopefully I'll be finished writing it. So that would be, you know, the project I would hope for your listeners to look out for. That's fantastic. Well, we'll look for that. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on Basecamp for Men and sharing your wisdom and your insights. And thank you so much for all the great work you've done on behalf of humanity and our, our health. Uh, it's it's just fantastic to talk to you and get a get a different opinion or a different set of uh, evidence and, and uh you know, a narrative that maybe we're not hearing. So thank you so much for sharing that. It was great to have you on. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Margulis. If you want to do a deep dive into the vaccine safety conversation, Ty Bollinger's The Truth About Vaccines is where I got my initial information. It's really an excellent documentary. 
You can start there or with either of the books Jennifer mentioned, Dr. Sears' The Vaccine Book and her book with Dr. Paul Thomas titled The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. And I loved her technique of checking the CDC, the section for doctors, and then cross-referencing that with the National Vaccine Information Center's website. Seems like really smart research and stuff we could all do. To find any of Jennifer's books, including her upcoming book, or sign up for her newsletter at www.jennifermargulies.net. Her last name is spelled M-A-R-G-U-L-I-S dot net. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors, and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.